Good evening and welcome to the Lockdown Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and follow our podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. As always, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and the Megaphone app. Subscribing is free and keeps you up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news and analysis. On tonight's episode, we are going to be talking about a little bit of a break from the greatest goal scorers run, and I thought I would talk about some of the most overpowered teams in the NHL and what makes them special. Maybe it's one of their tactical choices, maybe it's their roster, maybe it's the coaching, maybe it's all of the above. Before we get to the fun stuff, though, I did want to talk about a story that came out from TSN earlier today that I felt really bored taking a look at. I, th- I think it's one of those situations where I don't know the full details and I can't speculate beyond the information that's been presented, but I have to say it's not a good look for the NHL. Several years ago, former NHLer Todd Ewan committed suicide. It was in around 2015, and he committed suicide after allegedly dealing with CTE for a significant portion of his post-career life. And obviously the league said, well, you know, based on our findings, we didn't find any evidence of CTE in his brain after they did a medical autopsy. A reevaluation of the brain tissue area that they had examined previously a second time in 2018 actually revealed stage 2 CTE damage. This, of course, would conflict with the league's reporting, but it does sound like the league's doctor, who did the analysis at the time, confirmed the results and said that they were acceptable. Todd's widow, Kelly Ewan, has now filed a lawsuit, you know, essentially blaming the NHL for wrongful death. And when you commit to a lawsuit like this, you're taking on an incredibly massive organization. I know that the perception of the NHL is that it is small compared to the other pro sports leagues, and yes, it is. But when it comes to individual families or or members of teams or something coming up against a collective organization and its ownership, this is a very daunting process and one that should not be taken lightly. And immediately one of the things that's come out is that the NHL has demanded documents related to Todd's text messages. They're reportedly looking for evidence of an extramarital affair somewhere in these texts, and obviously I think that that is a huge invasion of privacy, and the league is basically arguing that because Todd is now deceased, he doesn't really have the normal privacy rights of a, of a living human being. I'm going to be honest, I, I think for all of the reasons you can possibly imagine, this is a very bad look for the NHL. Uh, obviously, they don't really want to get involved in CTE suits. This is the kind of thing that is a bit of a nightmare for them because already they've been trying to disprove CTE's impact on their players, even though they know it's really hard to do so. Thus far, they've kind of gotten away with it in the sense that I, th- I guess they're probably relying on correlation does not equal causation and then you know saying that there's not enough of a sample size to really confirm either way. But obviously, I think a lot of folks probably know that the, the reality is a little bit different than what the NHL is trying to spin it as. What's particularly troubling here, though, is that the NHL has expressed an intense desire to protect itself and is willing to basically sink to almost any low to try and get around this whole situation. The fact that they are stooping to the point of asking for text information so that they can, in fact, try and prove some sort of extramarital affair is just a really poor look. The NHL has basically said that, according to one lawyer, they'll out any of the skeletons in your closet to get around you. For me, it just seems like the NHL is almost playing a very low-brow, kind of low-class, small-potatoes game, as if they don't actually have any particular legal recourse for resolving this lawsuit. It's really embarrassing, and I feel like the NHL should frankly just piss off. 2020 has been a year in which it's been very difficult to continue to enjoy hockey. I know, for obviously, we, we kind of watch it anyways because we've got, you know, I guess, locked-in syndrome from, from quarantine and all that, but... 
I don't know, man. It's it's just really hard for me to get around the fact that the NHL continues to be something of a morally bankrupt organization. I know a lot of pro sports organizations and franchises and teams out there aren't all that different, but the stuff that I see from the NHL, it's just on another level of not getting it and, and really sinking below normal standards of what you'd expect from an organizational accountability perspective. Again, I think the troubling thing is this isn't really unusual, but I think the NHL should still be lambasted for this kind of stuff because, frankly, it's it's beneath them. In a year in which they've had a lot of image issues because their players have, frankly, expressed some, some sentiments that are probably not accepted by the broader majority of society, and, you know, they did the whole performative Black Lives Matter campaign that really didn't result in anything, I think you have to ask a lot about what exactly the NHL is believing itself to be. It's certainly not an organization that has any sort of moral backbone or fiber. And that's not really shocking because this is a pro sports organization that has time and again shown this to be the case. You may suggest that I'm painting in too broad of a stroke here, but I, I'm just tired of all of this bullcrap from this league. And I, I really feel like this year has tested more than any other year my fandom of hockey and how much I love it. Don't get me wrong, I love the sport beyond all reason. Hockey for me is one of the most thrilling experiences that you could possibly imagine. It has all of the pace, all of the action, and all of the intensity that you could possibly want with all of the skill you could ever ask for. I mean, it's a crazy, crazy sport with intense physicality and skill that most sports would really struggle to rival. Everything underpinning it, though, just really bugs me for so many reasons. It just feels like you're essentially watching a mafia-run sport. And look, I, I get it. A lot of sports are like this. You look at the NFL and it's really not that different. On the surface, the NBA is, you know, better in a lot of ways, but I have to say there are probably some issues that they haven't really disclosed and that they've done a good job of burying so far. So who knows how much of it really is just the players pushing for a lot of positive social change versus what some of these team ownership squads would actually put out. It just brings me back to the constant disappointment I feel with the NHL because we don't even get decent token movements from the NHL. All we get is just really empty lip service, these weird Twitter statements that are copy-pasted, and very limited feeling of action or understanding on either the part of players or the organization itself. And this sort of lawsuit and the way that they're playing it, it's just gross, man. I don't really know how else to describe it, and it, it's really bothering me for some reason, and I guess maybe it's because I've been without hockey for a while, and I've gotten to the point where I can reflect on it a little bit more, but I don't know if you've been feeling the same thing. It's just frustrating for me. I, I want to enjoy things without so many catches, but that's all we ever get is, is having to compromise on things and trying to find the middle ground where we accept some things just aren't going to be right as it is and that we kind of push for change until it does get better, but understand that it won't for a long time, that we're still going to have to fight for that anyways, regardless of whether or not we enjoy the current product or, or we hate it. I'm just bothered, man. It's been a long year, and this kind of stuff with this league just... It's so frustrating, and it's really disappointing, and again, not surprising. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this situation and whether or not you're feeling any of the same kind of frustration or, or frankly, fatigue that the NHL has put you through. So let me know at HLLivingLoco or at the podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. In just a little bit, we're going to shift away from some of the heavier topic material and talk about some of the more overpowered teams of the past few seasons. But before then, I thought you should know a little bit about Bill Go. If you've listened to this podcast for a long time, by now you probably know that I very much enjoy Built Bars, which are protein bars that are more like a candy bar with a dark chocolate exterior and a soft chewy interior. But Built isn't content to rest on its laurels. They're back with a brand new offering called Built Go, and it's what I turn to when I need to kick down my daily walls. 
Whether I'm dragging my tail while trying to get my day started for work or looking for something to kickstart my outdoor hike, BuiltGo is there for me when I need it. It comes in convenient one and a half ounce packages that you can put in your briefcase, your golf bag, or wherever else you need to go. It's the five hour energy you need with none of the crash and comes in three delicious flavors including peanut butter honey, chocolate coconut, and chocolate mint. It's fortified with protein, beta alanine, B3, honey, a little bit of caffeine, B6, and B12 so you have energy all day and can keep kicking those walls down. Getting started with BuiltGo is super easy. Visit BuiltGo.com and use promo code LOCKED and you'll get 20% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKED for 20% off at BuiltGo.com. Let's go. Welcome back to the Locked on Winnipeg Jets podcast. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, we are going to be talking about some of the most broken, overpowered hockey teams over the past several seasons, and we probably know at least a few of them. And we'll start with a familiar old friend, or I guess a little bit of a haunt for some of us that have a couple of painful memories and attachments to this team that no longer exists, but this is the 2017-2018 Winnipeg Jets. Anyone who is a Jets fan or even has heard of the Winnipeg Jets or knows that they exist and have airport access in Winnipeg probably knows that the 2017-2018 team was one of the best all-time Winnipeg Jets teams we have ever seen. That squad had depth for ages, and it was one of the best teams in the NHL. I truly believe that that squad was primed for a Stanley Cup win. When the Caps ended up winning it all, of course, I was very happy for Washington, but I also felt like Winnipeg was this close to pulling it off and really getting this this cup win that would cement the legacy of this core for years to come. Because to be honest, Winnipeg kind of banked everything on that season. Paul Stastny came in. We still had Enstrom. Line A was more of a complimentary piece. I mean, we had so much offensive talent and we had so much depth. And, and Mark Shifley was playing at a pretty decent level. And the rest of the, the bottom six guys and middle six guys, when given like a, a player like Paul Stastny to work alongside with, I mean, they just really excelled beyond what you would imagine this team was capable of. Adam Lowry and Andrew Kopp were killing bottom six minutes. The defense was, for the most part, stifling. The team created waves and layers of offense in the attacking zone. The power play when it was functioning at full strength was an unholy menace. The only thing that ended up holding them back just a, a little bit was that Connor Hellebuck wasn't as good as he is now, and that really was the difference against the Vegas Golden Knights that year. Winnipeg was really at the peak of its franchise history. I mean, this this truly was a team that I felt was a cup favorite. Pretty much everyone was saying that they were the team to beat in the Final Four, and unfortunately, just about every bounce and mistake ended up going against the Jets, and it ended up in the back of their net in Vegas. Vegas advanced. I really feel though that that Jets team set the model for what I thought Winnipeg could be going forward. Now obviously that team uh, had a couple of traded assets that came in and they weren't really expected to stick around. Paul Stastny of course is back now which is super funny but that was the season that I think everyone banked on the Jets really progressing and, and doing this thing that not a lot of people believe the Jets could do a couple of seasons ago. Winnipeg, of course, made the playoffs once in 2014-15, but obviously that team was defined by a much more gritty, kind of grindy defensive approach to hockey. The 17-18 Jets were really characterized by just having overwhelming offensive power that, you know, no matter what, they could drive play at almost every level. They had very good defending and man marking. They were generally pretty smart with a puck, and they had so many passing and shooting options that you really couldn't shut everyone down. Playing Winnipeg was a murderer's row, and it really showed against the Nashville Predators, who were considered one of the top teams to beat. I felt like Nashville was very beatable that season, even though they were so good. I just felt like Winnipeg was going to somehow pull it out, although I was maybe hoping that they didn't have to do it in seven games, which of course didn't end up being the case. It, it took all seven, and again, that's not really surprising against that version of the Preds. That team was definitely a lot better than they've been recently. 
but for all intents and purposes, Winnipeg was the favorite in that series. The Jets just had everything, including physicality, skill, excellent offensive special teams. Not great uh, penalty killing, but not the worst either. You know, pretty pretty decent uh, above average goaltending and a pretty solid defense. But of course, the forward core was what made Winnipeg almost unplayable. The team that they matched up against is actually broken for a very different reason, and that's the Vegas Golden Knights. The Knights have this kind of quirky approach that I think really frustrated the Jets. Vegas kind of comes at you with a lot of depth players who are very underappreciated, but play a very high-tempo, high-pressing, fast-countering game. They have a lot of guys who just seem to know at a really fundamental level where they need to be on the ice and how to use space effectively. This is kind of one of the key tenets because... Generally speaking, I, I don't think that they have guys like Patrick Laine hiding on their roster. Mark Stone is obviously a phenomenal goal scorer, and there are a couple of guys who score quite a few markers for that team, but I think the way that their overall team plays is really like team-based offense and sort of uh, offensive dominance that leads to team defense because they just don't spend any time in their own zone. Or at least it was a little bit difficult for, for uh, teams to get a real beat on them in the past couple of seasons. Nowadays, their defense is a little bit, you know, kind of questionable at some points but the way that Vegas still plays is is very much aligned to this high octane high offense high tempo approach that I think a lot of teams have thought about replicating but don't really have the tactical wherewithal to, to pull together what is kind of interesting is that, is that a coaching change really hasn't changed as much for that team as I'd expected, although I will say that Gerard Gallon is probably still better than DeBoer. That said, it seemed like DeBoer wasn't really too intent on changing all that much. I think that he understood Vegas had a system that they used and that that system, for the most part, was very effective. I would say that Vegas wasn't as broken as the Jets were that season because the Knights, while very, very, very good, especially with the talent on their roster, you know, they, they did have some deficiencies in certain areas, and it was more like goaltending was uh, ultimately the decider in that year. Since then, though, the, the Knights have only continued to get better and better, although I think at, at some point they are going to hit a ceiling. You know, they brought in Alex Petrangelo this year, and I don't know if Petrangelo really makes them significantly better. It's not like bringing in Mark Stone, where Mark Stone immediately dominates a, a top-line role on your squad. I think Petrangelo is a very good defender and, and definitely a top four, if not top pairing blue liner. But at this stage of his career, I just don't think he moves the needle enough for where the, the Knights really aspire to go to. Vegas is looking for a title now, and I'm not sure that Petrangelo is the kind of player who gets them over the line. I think he is an excellent player. I just think at some point you are going to start seeing diminishing returns with this team. There's only so much good that they can get out of their top players and veterans, and bringing in a guy like Petrangelo maybe isn't quite the move that's going to push them over the edge. I could be totally wrong. Maybe it actually solves a key problem for them this season, and they're able to go really far. But as it is right now, I don't think that that was their primary need. What they really need is just some elite finishing to go along with their extraordinarily good play driving. Speaking of having all of the ingredients that makes a team dominant, including great goal scoring and play driving, up next we'll cover a few more teams including the Tampa Bay Lightning. Maybe one of the most broken overall teams in the entire NHL over the past couple of seasons. Welcome back to the Locked on Winnipeg Jets podcast. We have been talking a little bit about some of the top NHL teams in terms of most broken and overpowered squads possible. 
With how much parity there is in the league, it can be hard to find particular examples where teams were just head and shoulders above the competition, but we do know that the Tampa Bay Lightning over the past several seasons remains one of the key examples. From almost every level, the Lightning are just built to win. This is a squad that has incredible defensive depth. It's got a great bottom six with huge play drivers like Blake Coleman and uh, Yanni Gord. Their top six, which didn't even have Steven Stamkos for various stretches of this season, features guys like Nikita Kucherov, Braden Point, Andre Palat, Alex Killorn sometimes I mean, this is just a team that has a whole variety of weapons, but it's really in the way that they construct it um, through all four lines that makes them particularly unique. This is a squad that just has the depth of like a 2017-2018 Jets team, but they continue to do it with a lot of cap bailouts by negotiating trades with some other teams and managing to work around the cap restrictions by signing and, and trading for really savvy acquisitions on the cheap. They do pay in other ways, most notably like draft prospects, but then they sign guys in free agency, you know, maybe overagers or some players who are perhaps a bit underrated, and those players turn out to be pretty good NHLers. Their, their scouting and prospect analysis remains top tier. The Lightning are often a model in how you could build an NHL team, but I think a lot of it for a long time was driven by Steve Eiserman. There, you know, I, I think that their approach is certainly replicable in a lot of ways. It's just I think you also need the right people managing the team at the head. Although there is increasing evidence that maybe Eiserman wasn't the only piece of the puzzle in terms of, of getting deals done and essentially making what he wants his vision to be into a reality. The recent management teams have done a pretty good job of constructing a winner, which they didn't have to do a whole lot to. They just had to navigate around a lot of cap situations and make sure that they didn't overspend on bad players, which thus far they've done pretty well. This is a squad that has a lot of depth. They have a lot of players under pretty decent contracts. I think Kucherov being one of the most uh, important deals. Braden Point signing long-term is also a huge deal because Point is obviously one of the most important players in the league and certainly... I would say Tampa Bay's best overall player too. The only squad that I think has ever rivaled someone like Tampa Bay is maybe the Pittsburgh Penguins of a couple of years ago. That Pens team, when it had all of the offensive depth and skill that it did, truly just ran over teams. They won multiple cups and made it look convincing in style because of how deep that team was and how aggressively Mike Sullivan pushed that squad to be a, a really aggressive countering team. They had speed, they had skill, they had a defense that didn't really defend but it certainly contributed on the offensive side of things which I think is exactly what Pittsburgh was looking for. Sullivan was more interested in sort of fluid skaters who could change positions a little bit and feel comfortable taking on more than one role which is ultimately leading to a team that has a lot of ability to adapt to any sort of situation. It made the pens really hard to read, it made them very dangerous and very fast, and you really couldn't make a mistake against them. As the juggernaut caps of the past few seasons often found out, even their best teams really struggled to, to maintain composure against that Pittsburgh squad, which ousted them in almost every second round they faced. The pens had a really thriving model for how to build a winner, and ultimately it did pay off for the most part. It also helps having guys like Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin hanging around too. Rutherford has made a number of missteps though, and I think that certainly the brokenness aspect of that team has, has waned a lot. I think that their defense has definitely aged out and it's just not that deep. And they are starting to see some declines in some of their top players. You know, guys are getting older, that core is not as young as it used to be, and Rutherford's management of the situation is questionable to put it lightly. Thus far, Jim has managed to kind of work himself out of any mistakes by 
somehow convincing somebody else to take on his mistakes, but I feel like that's only going to, to last so long. Pittsburgh is going to need a fresh coat of paint at some point, and if they want to get back to their winning ways, they really need to look at the management office and think about which ways they can start to make some changes and plan ahead for the future. The rest of Crosby's career, while still thriving, is certainly not guaranteed, so they need to exercise caution and plan ahead for the future. That said, they've won a number of titles in the past decade, so I think that they don't really have a whole lot of room to complain. And with that, we wrap up some of our most broken teams. I may talk about a few more tomorrow, and we'll see if you guys agree with me. If you don't, be sure to let me know at HLLivingLoco and at our podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. Before you log off, if you are an NBA fan, be sure to check out the Locked On NBA Mock Draft, which is a five-day experience ongoing right now. It started on Wednesday and continues through next Tuesday, including six picks per day and several guests from around the NBA reporting world. So be sure to tune in every day for the best NBA mock draft around. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, have a great night, and go Jets go!